Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello, everyone. This is David of the History of England podcast. Prepare to be delighted because you've arrived at the extraordinary History of World War II podcast by Ray Harris. This week's going to be a humdinger, so have fun. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II podcast, episode 59, Miracles and Mistakes. On September 23, 1940, a special report was given to Hitler, summing up the air war thus far. But instead of being an unbiased account, something that would help the Fuhrer decide the next best course for Germany, it was hollow, contained few facts, and reflected that same unrealistic worldview as Goering's meeting at Karen Hall on September 16th. Its final paragraph proves the point. In general, things were going their way, the men still wanted to fight, and they simply, unfortunately, ran out of time. Oh, and the damned English weather. Not to be outdone, Goering at Karen Hall repeated his mantra. Just a few more days were needed. That being said, it was decided that winter camps would be built so the Luftwaffe could go on destroying fighter command in some comfort. They would now focus on British aircraft factories, not admitting defeat, but if they couldn't stop the British system, they believed they could deprive their adversaries of aircraft. Amazingly, Hitler was not too bothered by his report of the 23rd. It had been a large risk, after all, even if the Luftwaffe had obtained air superiority, and that Hitler gave up on in late August. But battle had been joined. So, the bombing of civilians trying to destroy fighter command and the overall threat of an impending invasion would go on. But Hitler was already thinking of next spring. He would invade the Soviet Union. A land-based strategist crossing the vast distances between German-controlled Poland and the outskirts of Moscow was easier to imagine and therefore execute rather than crossing the 20-odd-mile-wide English Channel. Besides, once the British saw that their last possible ally in Europe was conquered, they would come around and negotiate a truce, in Germany's favor, of course. The war with Britain would de-evolve, and Hitler and Goering would go their separate ways on the issue. Hitler was already looking elsewhere, but needed someone to keep the British weak and hemmed in, and Goering, who never wanted the invasion, was happy to take on the job. Four days after Hitler received his report of the air war, he had ordered all transport barges so far collected to stay put, but no more were to be added. The German troops and armor assembled were to be moved east, away from the nightly British bombing. They could easily be marched back to the coast when and if 
circumstances allowed. Of course, the British were privy to none of this. They continued on with their secret meetings and plans of how to expel the invaders when they came. Park handled the day-to-day strategy and wrote directives, fine-tuning doubting system. Churchill continuously called up the Admiralty to ask about the weather in the Channel. And finally, Downing submitted to Churchill a paper about his idea for effective night fighting. The Prime Minister was excited by its prospects, but what Downing couldn't know was that this idea, combined with politics of a personal nature, would be used to undo him. In the days that followed September 15th, British reconnaissance flights would see a reduction in the invasion fleet, but intercepted German radio traffic by Enigma codebreakers that spoke of their plans as still moving forward. Prudence was deemed the best course. The air battles continued, London was bombed nightly, but Hitler began walking away from the Channel. On October 12th, Hitler issued an order that said from now on, the movements concerning the invasion were solely to keep pressure on the British to tie down their troops and ships. Sea Lion was now officially a bluff. On October 27th, other German radio traffic picked up by Enigma concerned itself with the training for Sea Lion. But Churchill knew that a potential invasion force either prepared to embark or did not. Talk of training was not the same thing. The Germans could practice until they were all old men, as far as Churchill cared. But he knew that they could not do both at the same time. Later that day, when the Prime Minister saw the latest aerial photographs of the barges leaving, empty and not towards his coast, he believed the direct threat to Britain was over. But the war with Britain was not. If the German army could not land their troops on British soil, then the British economy would be wrecked. This would become the policy as of February 6th in the following year, as the British merchant fleet would be targeted. The U-boat war was to be stepped up on the ships that acted as Britain's lifeline to the world. Air attacks were also to focus on all available targets connected with the merchant fleet. For both countries, the bomber war intensified against the other's capital and other significant cities. Soon after September 15th, the civilians from both sides would come to dread the night. For the British, between September 7th, 1940 and May 16th, 1941, London was bombed 71 times. 57 of those were on consecutive nights. More than 100 tons of explosives were dropped on the British capital and at least 16 other cities. By the time Hitler started rounding up resources for Operation Barbarossa, his anticipated attack on the Soviet Union, some 1 million homes in London were destroyed and more than 40,000 civilians killed, half of which had resided in the capital. But because Fighter Command's ability to deliver casualties to the German airmen, by October the Luftwaffe switched their main effort to night attacks, and that had become official on October 7th. 
But Gary's decisions some years back now hampered the Germans in their task to terrorize the British into submission. The aircraft they used, the Dornier 17, the Ju-88, the Heinkel 111, were not the large bombers needed to carry sufficient bomb loads. They had worked well previously in combination with panzers when France and others were overrun, as they were intended to. But now, many more planes had to be sent over to deliver the tonnage of bombs thought needed to cripple the British way of life and economy. And the British military personnel had carried themselves well during this time, but they had at least volunteered. The civilians, and certainly the citizens of London, did not sign up for this, and they now had to find the metal to resist and endure. They did. Many soon joined the Home Guard to support the Army, or the Air Raid Precautions Service, or the Auxiliary Fire Service, or the Scout Association that guided firemen and equipment to where they were needed most, or the ever-overwhelmed Royal Army Pay, along with the Pioneer Corps that was given the task of salvage and cleaning up. The WVS Women's Voluntary Service for Civil Defense, organized the evacuation of children, created and maintained locations for those displaced by the Blitz. They also managed canteens, helped with recycling, and helped pass out gas masks in case the Germans bombed before invading. And through all this activity, and trying to live some sort of life, the remainder of 1940 and the beginning of 1941, went on for the British people. Through the loss and tears, they did not yield, and British production of war industries went on operating and expanding. It seems that, indeed, they could take it. But if the Luftwaffe, directly under Gehring's control now, could not stop the British people or war production, bomber command of the British were equally limited and unable to deliver a knockout blow. Berlin was 590 miles from London, which meant reaching it was barely possible for the British bombers of the time. But during the fall of 1940, London's main concern were the transport barges across the channel from them. Obsessed, and rightly so, they continued bombing the transport vessels, even after their numbers started reducing in late September. And during this, the Germans went right on bombing British cities. But whereas the system of defense used by Fighter Command had been worked out and tested years before the air war, Bomber Command was still in its Stone Age. Their belief that the bomber would get through remained strong. This, despite unacceptable losses when bombers were sent over to hit a target in northern France, or in another occupied country along the coast, or one of the few survivors would come back with horrid stories of AA guns or Messerschmitts cutting through them. All through this, daylight raids were still ordered. Furthermore, it took the fiasco during the Aliborg operation on August 13th before bombers were no longer sent out during the day beyond the range of fighter protection. During that raid, all 11 planes sent out 
were never seen again. To tie their hands further, the young British bomber pilots were told repeatedly to avoid non-military targets, even if that meant coming home with their bombs still in the hold. But as London and the other cities suffered nightly, the press raged and the government felt the pressure. These restrictions were lessened and then ignored. In September 1940, Bomber Command had 17 squadrons of aircraft for use as night bombers. The mainstay of these were comprised of Wellingtons, Whitleys, and Hamdens. But by 1940, these were already showing their age, or limitations. By far, the Hamden needed immediate replacing. Its cruising speed was only 155 miles an hour, and it had too much glass in its body. It couldn't take too much damage and had no power-operated turrets, and could only carry a max bomb load of 4,000 pounds. However, it was only 10 miles an hour slower than the other bombers. Clearly, the Wellingtons and Whitleys would need serious overhauling to do their part in the future air war. At the time, the British targeting techniques were equally dismal. In fact, Germany was at first not sure what Bomber Command's policy was due to the seemingly random targets bombed. During the Battle of Britain, German farms, homes, forests, and even lakes were hit by the British bombs. Their navigation also needed vast improvements. In fact, navigation was one area, probably the only one, that Germany exceeded Britain if only for a short time. Excepting that darkness and cloudy days were the only safe time to bomb, the Germans still needed to hit their target, and the frustrating air battle with Britain pushed their technological advances forward. So, by the fall of 1940, a system called Nikken Beam was developed that used radio beams to guide their bombers to a location. It wasn't advanced enough to guarantee a hit on a factory, but it certainly could be used to locate a city. Suddenly, darkness, clouds, and fog were irrelevant. British intelligence quickly learned of this, and with a few select scientists working together, developed the ability to deflect or confuse the German beams. But it took a few months to work the kinks out. During that time, British cities suffered. For example, a raid of 400 German bombers was launched against the city of Coventry. It was the night of November 14th, and Fire Command still had no effective nighttime defense in place. By the time the bombers were heading home, over 20,000 houses had been destroyed, 600 people were killed, and thousands more left injured. Other British cities would have to endure until the German beam could be disrupted. Then, bombs from German aircraft began falling around British cities, almost as much as within them. The Wizard War, as Churchill called it, would go on, each side attempting to counter the other's latest technological development. As the Luftwaffe tried to terrorize the British people or destroy their ability to build new fighter aircraft, 
Bomber Command tried to bomb German oil depots, thereby bringing their ability to wage war to a standstill. But due to limitations already covered, that goal never came close to being met. Besides, by the winter of 1940, oil imports from Romania helped feed Germany's need. Soon, Bomber Command targeted German towns with incendiary bombs, or rather, their electricity stations and communication centers. Again, any hits were mostly luck. But now, German citizens were suffering, just like their British counterparts. As Britain was in no position to land troops on the continent anytime soon, they continued to focus on bombing their adversary. This one element of the offensive would ultimately become their major weapon of the war. That is, until they were joined in their cause by the Soviets and Americans. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. With the invasion all but lost as a possibility, Goering's war with Fighter Command continued on. He tried new tricks, new tactics, mixed up the types of aircraft in a formation, anything that came to mind. But the war in the air went on as before. The Luftwaffe had a few good days, but mostly they lost more than they took, while still trying to ravage Fighter Command. As September passed by and October came, the pilots from both sides felt their slaughtering of each other had become pointless. The Germans weren't coming over, and it wasn't Fighter Command's job to go on the offensive. In October, Gehring had at least one-third of every group act as fighter bombers. This was his pet project, and he put his faith in it. But Fighter Command adjusted quickly and was able to figure out if the adapted fighters were carrying an extra fuel tank or bombs underneath. The extra fuel meant they had a longer chance to be shot at, and if they were carrying a bomb, then they received the full attention from one or more squadrons, or a big wing. The big wing didn't turn out to be the tactical miracle some believed, but its psychological effects were enormous. Overall, Gehring's plan of fighter bombers was a good one, but it should have been tried in early August after much training. But now, it was a desperate hope with little training and limited execution. Certainly not enough to make a difference now. Between September 16th, the day after the Battle of Britain Day, and October 31st, the day that is recognized by the British as the official end to the Battle of Britain, the RAF lost an additional 268 aircraft. The Luftwaffe would go on to lose 550 more. In total, but still a conservative estimate, 
the RAF lost 915 planes, to the Germans 1,733. On September 30th, the king named Hugh Coswell Tremahir Dowding as Knight Grand Commander of the Order of the Bath. But accommodations of this sort were for those normally on their way out. As London and the other cities came under more devastating attacks at night, Downing found himself more and more criticized for failing to act. In truth, Downing was working on a plan, but he was doing it his way, at his pace. But enemies made before and during the war used his apparent lack of concern to condemn him. Lee Mallory's stock was rising, as he claimed over and over, of the success of his big wing. Park, angered by this swill being believed, fired off his own reports. But Downing kept his head down and focused on the defense of Britain and trying to develop his nighttime system. Besides, politics did not interest him. It should have. A committee was created to review and assess Downing's handling of the air war. The verdict was critical of his nighttime operations, which is understandable, but also of his daytime defense. The truth, the fact that Britain was stronger now than in July, meant nothing. This was personal and preordained by those who wanted Downing out or saw him as someone who should have retired by now. Memos and counter-memos flew about like artillery, but the writing was on the wall. On October 14th, a supposed innocent meeting was held to determine the optimal sized force to be used to challenge a German bomber formation. But Hatton Park already worked this out. Hadn't he been using whatever was needed each time a challenge came his way? It didn't matter. The meeting was used to refute Park's tactics and through him attacked Downing. Another meeting followed on October 17th. That again went Lee Mallory's way. On October 26th, a memo was distributed about the tension between 11 and 12 group and placed the blame at Dowding's feet. This was true enough, but it was by now nothing more than a cudgel to attack Dowding's standing. The situation continued to deteriorate and decisions were made. On November 25, 1940, Downing was retired as the Commander-in-Chief of Fighter Command. His final note to all the operational units of Fighter Command read, My dear fighter boys, in sending you this, my last message, I wish I could say all that is in my heart. I cannot hope to surpass the simple eloquence of the Prime Minister's words. Never before has so much been owed by so many to so few. The debt remains and will increase. In saying goodbye to you, I want you to know how continually you have been in my thoughts, and that, though our direct communication may be severed, I may yet be able to help you in your gallant fight. Goodbye to you, and God bless you all. Downing would know other indignities at the hands of Sinclair, the Secretary of State for Air, and other politicians, 
But in 1943, Churchill proposed a barony, and Downing accepted. His title was to be the Lord Downing of Bentley Priory. A few months after Downing was replaced and was in the U.S. acting as a representative for Britain, two pilots were sent up at night and used the method Downing had designed. It worked just as he said it would, as a German bomber was shot out of the night sky. Churchill would lose another ally. Author Neville Chamberlain, the former Prime Minister, had a seat on the five-member war cabinet. He had done his best to bring the Conservatives behind Churchill, who was always grateful for this. But as the British fought off the German air advance, Chamberlain grew sick. The rest he should have gotten was denied him, as he had to head down to an air raid shelter night after night. And he left London for the last time on September 19th. It was cancer, and it was clear that Neville Chamberlain would never return to his duties. Chamberlain would not accept the highest order of British chivalry, the Order of the Garter, that Churchill offered him. In refusing, he said that he would prefer to die plain Mr. Chamberlain, like my father before me. He died on November 9, 1940, at the age of 71. The RAF did not beat back the Luftwaffe on the Battle of Britain Day. That had been done years ago. The planes they used were created years before. Radar, though discovered by someone else, was molded to fit a specific need. The pilots learned, suffered, but endured. The WAFs proved their indispensability while remaining cool under fire. The crews that repaired Fighter Command's airfields night after night after night. The Observer Corps, those brave volunteers, more than made up for any shortcoming from radar. The gunners and searchlight operators did their best to offer resistance. Bomber Command tried valiantly to take the war to the enemy. And Coastal Command obsessed over their shores and beaches. The ferry pilots moved about the much-needed personnel, parts, and planes. The factory workers defied random death from above to equip their gallant young men. The citizenry soon became the purposeful victims of the enemy and took it as best they could. Turns out they indeed took it just as Churchill said they could, even if they didn't know they were capable of it at the time. And then there's the air defense system, thought out by others, but developed and put together to work in harmony by doubting. And even if the Luftwaffe's claims of victories had been true, the RAF, Fighter Command, the system as a whole, would have gone on. Pilots from up north would have been brought down, and the struggle would have continued. New leaders and heroes would come to replace the dead ones. Radar was still there, and the women around the plotting boards were only getting better each day. Based on this, all the British had to do was avoid making horrendous mistakes, and Park didn't even come close. In fact, when the Luftwaffe switched their focus 
from the airfields to London. It was a relief for fighter command, not a deliverance. Downing and Park were sensitive to even a dip in efficiency in their response system, much less something closer to a collapse. That would not happen with these men in their respective places. Gehring was brash, and so was his fighting style. But against the British, he needed a rapier, not a broadsword. And the German air arm would suffer tremendously, as many of the aircraft lost were multi-crewed. By the end of the battle, the Luftwaffe lost 2,698 men to fighter commands 544. But all the blame cannot be laid at Gehring's feet. His biggest mistake was in refusing to stay after the radar towers. They were hard to hit, but again, they were all on the coast, within reach. And if they could have been kept down for a week or two, the damage that could have been done to London, their factories, or airfields, could have been crippling. The use of commandos used so effectively against earlier enemies were not dropped near radar stations, or even attempted. But the Luftwaffe's other mistake was in developing a system where a few pilots chased their scores over a common victory over the enemy. The British fought amongst themselves, but overall stood shoulder to shoulder in the face of the enemy. Hitler also deserves part of the blame. Only someone in his position could have brought the necessary energy and focus to bring off such an endeavor. But his heart was never in it. So, neither was Nazi Germany's. It was just the Luftwaffe. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. And you can always call one of the State Farm agents in neighborhoods across the country. Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. According to Stephen Bungay's brilliant book, The Most Dangerous Enemy, there were 10 people who made unique contributions to Britain's victory. The first was Major General E.B. Ashmore, in charge of air defense during World War I. He came up with the ideas Downing would manifest when he took command in 1936. The Observer Corps, plotting and reporting system, gridded maps, and the use of a telephone network. He thought it through, and Downing brought it to life. Then there's Henry Tizard, who separated the harebrained ideas when they all seemed like science fiction, and kept the focus on practical applications. Robert Watson Watt, who took the death ray idea and ran with the stumbled-upon discovery of radio detection finding. The civilians did their part on the industrial side. Sidney Cam's hurricane, the backbone of Fighter Command's arsenal, was comparatively inexpensive to make, easy to repair, and could take an impressive amount of damage. Cam's personal drive and desire to make sure Britain was not left vulnerable gave Britain a formidable weapon, and because he pushed on, 
beyond the government specifications. There were about 400 more hurricanes than thought needed at the time. Reginald Mitchell's magnificent Spitfire could look the ME-109 in the eye. But they both used Ernest Hive's Merlin engine. He was involved all along in its development. Next was Ralph Sorley. Armaments was his crusade. He was practical and pragmatic. It worked or it did not, and it was dispensed with. His major contribution was in making sure the Hurricane and Spitfire both had eight machine guns instead of four. And next was Downing, who took all this and made a system out of the madness. Picturing it in his mind, he built the system that used others in their turn for the greater goal. Simply, he gave Britain a defensive air shield. Next was Churchill. He used Downing and his system to stave off the Germans while fighting off the peace movement at home. Defeat and occupation were not inevitable. He saw the big picture, but focused on the few critical aspects that needed his attention, and he made sure they were worked on. In essence, he did his part to make sure that enough days ended without defeat, and victory can be built from this. And finally, there's Keith Park. He took the shield and sword that Doubting created and applied it as it was needed. Aggressive defense was how he saw the path to victory, and he led the way, running the show for five long months. Britain's victory would allow the island nation to fulfill its destiny, to act as a base for the Allied army to invade the continent from the west one day. It allowed Britain to win another battle over time, the Battle of the Atlantic. Had Britain succumbed to defeat, the Soviet Union would still have won against Germany. It would have taken longer, been much uglier and more brutal, if such a thing can be imagined. But in time, the Soviet army and its millions would have pushed west, but not stopping at the Oder-Neisse line the border between Germany and Poland. Stalin would have whipped his soldiers until they were staring out over the Atlantic Ocean and the Mediterranean Sea. Britain's victory also convinced many in the U.S. that there was still hope, after all. The resistance movement throughout Europe clung to that hope as well. And Hitler would find himself over the next few years, allocating more and more resources to fight off the British. Resources that were, over time, frantically needed in his life-or-death struggle against the Soviet Union. The British won the Battle of Britain simply because they got to fight the air battle they had planned for since 1936. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, after eight months and 19 episodes, we are finally done with the Battle of Britain. Of course, the war will still go on for the British citizens. They're still bombed, 
for a very long time after this. Um, and also the German citizens will start to feel it as Bomber Command brings the war to them as they get stronger and better at what they're doing. Um, next, we're going to go to North Africa. Um, and we're going to back up a little bit, bring that up to speed, probably take it to the end of 1940. And of course, I'll put in a lot more detail. Probably not a day-to-day -day account of what happened, but we'll do the best we can. As long as I can find sources on it, I will give you all the detail I can. Having said that, um, I am pretty weak on the war in the desert and the Mediterranean, so please keep sending me recommendations for books and sources. Um, I really appreciate it. Of course, we still have to cover a bio on Churchill, uh, talk about Enigma, and uh, discuss what's been going on in the occupied countries thus far. But we'll get to that. We'll figure it all out uh, a little later. I wanted to tell you about a new page on Facebook. Um, myself and a bunch of other history podcasters have put it together. Um, it's called History Podcasts. I think it's all in capital letters, but you can find it if you're interested. Um, what we do is it's a chance for the people behind the microphone and the people that listen to get together, talk, discuss things, ask questions. Um, we're currently working on a separate podcast that will be hosted by someone um, other than ourselves, and we'll probably be, take turns being interviewed or discussing things or setting up little forums, that kind of thing. So we're still working out the details, but I'll let you know more as, as we get closer to it. So, like I said, North Africa is next, um, but this Saturday, um, September the 2nd, I'll be flying out to California to spend a couple of days with Laszlo Montgomery of the China History Podcast. We're going to hang out for a couple of days, uh, go into his man cave, um, probably record a show, which I think he's going to use for his 100th episode, which is pretty impressive. So, I'll let you know more about that as we get closer. So before I end with thanking those who have contributed lately, which probably in the history of this podcast has been one of the most important times because obviously I need an entirely new library for the subject of the Mediterranean or North Africa. And thank you to Mike for giving me an excellent start on that. Um, I couldn't possibly end the Battle of Britain series without um, throwing in my own limited personal experience. Um, Studying this for eight months and doing all these shows, you um, can't help but look at the sky a little differently. Um, where I work, there's an airport nearby. It's nothing uh, too major. This is central Virginia, after all. But um, from where I work, you can stand in the parking lot, and you can pretty much watch these very small planes, uh, two-seaters, take off, circle around a couple times, and then land. Um, they're probably getting their pilot license or something, but... It helps you to get a sense of what these gentlemen, uh, some, some of them very, very young, had to deal with to go up, defy gravity, fly at amazing speeds. You could die at any moment. And, of course, your death would have been horrific or maybe you, you could have been burned or, or something. Um, it was just an amazing time. And after all that we've been through for the last eight months, I just have to say that I will never look in the sky the same way again. God bless the RAF. Thank you to Joseph C. of Lakewood, Colorado, um, Michael R. of St. Albans, Victoria, Australia, Dean M. from Hastings in East Sussex, UK, and Asaf M. from Tel Aviv, Israel, 
and Ryan H. of San Antonio, Texas, Micah M. from Carrier Mills, Illinois, and Greg U. from Edinburgh, Midlothian, UK. Again, thank you. Um, every cent of that has gone into buying new books um, in North Africa, Mediterranean, Enigma, um, Mussolini, the coming Italians um, into our story. So again, thank you. Even though I buy the books used on Amazon, it still racks up a lot of money. So I could not do this without you. Thank you very much and take care, everyone. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.